Lord, we just praise you for who you are. We praise you for taking care of us. We praise you for bringing us here. We praise you for your sovereignty and your love over our lives. And we just come to you tonight, and we just surrender our night to you, our problems, um, the joys and the stresses that we're facing right now. And we pray that you just give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and focus on your word, um, to process it, to understand it, to hear the message, to be challenged and rebuked where necessary, to be encouraged and exhorted when we need it. Ultimately, I pray that you just take these words, hide them in our heart, and allow them to become the seeds that will grow to further us along in our joys and help us face the struggles and anxieties that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in First, Second, and Third John, covering the epistles. We will start with an introduction where we'll look at setting and purpose and the themes and the structure to kind of get an idea of what the letters are like um, before we dive into them. These are what's called the Johannine letters. Johannine is just a fancy way of saying the John letters. And these letters get their name from, obviously, John. Now, it is debated among scholars whether this is John, the disciple of Jesus, who wrote the Gospel of John, which, or this is a different John. Obviously, John was a very common name at this time period in the ancient world. However, the, the language, the themes, and the styles of these letters parallel the Gospel of John very strongly. There are some people who wonder if John actually wrote the Gospels of John, but that's pretty well established that he wrote the Gospel of John. And when you read the Gospel of John, and then you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the language, the style of it, and the themes just really match up and parallel the Gospel of John, making it very clear that this is John. Now, if you really want to geek out and get into the Greek and all that kind of stuff, you can check out commentaries on that, and they'll go through that. John is more like, most likely writing this as a follow-up to the Gospels. We'll talk about this later with the false teachers, but the Gospels are being used by the false teachers to promote their way of thinking rather than what John was trying to say. And most scholars believe that First John, Second, and Third is kind of more of a like, uh, that's not what I meant in the Gospels. The fact that many of the themes of the Gospel of John are continued into these letters and are unpacked at a greater depth points to these letters being authored by the Gospel um, after the Gospel of John. John establishes some major themes about Christ's identity, Christ's works, and the theology surrounding that. And these themes are further developed in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And when you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you don't get the idea that these themes are being introduced and described for the first time in some kind of like elementary understanding. You get the idea that he's building on themes that were already established themes that were already developed. And so this points strongly to the fact that 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are coming after the Gospel of John. And they are continuing to develop and carry out the themes that were already established in John. Therefore, the date of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John should be dated after John. Now, since John is one of the most later Gospels, um, Mark is the first Gospel written, somewhere around 55 to 60 A.D., we know that Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, was the first letter ever written, even before the Gospels. And we know 
First Corinthians is pretty much undisputed in its authorship and undisputed in its date. It's like the one book that all scholars agree on, uh, whether you're a Christian or not in that. That puts Mark after 55 AD, and then, of course, the Gospels will come out that. So most people date 1st, 2nd, 3rd John then to somewhere between 80 and 90 AD um, as a dating because we know that John is writing somewhere around the 70s, and then Revelation was written after these, and those are dated much later. So that's the dating and all that kind of stuff. The setting. The Johannine letters were written during the first century of the Christianity to refute false teachings about Christianity. The educated elite of the Greco-Roman world. So this is the world that they're living in, the Greco-Roman world, the, the Greek world that pretty much established the culture, the religion, and a lot of the governmental ideas of that time period. The Romans basically didn't develop anything new. They just kind of built on the Greeks. And then they just, and one thing that they did was they pretty much plagiarized their religion, plagiarized their, Christi- their, their, their culture, and even their form of government. But what the Romans did contribute was they perfected and honed and emphasized government way more than the Greeks. And so this is why it's called the Greco-Roman world, because this is the world that the Greeks and the Romans built and became the foundation for even our culture through Plato's writings. And this, during this time period, around the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 80s AD, there is a religion called misreligions that is very prominent among the elite. Now, the everyday normal Greco-Roman person, there's no middle class in the ancient world, so you have the poor, the everyday normal person, and then you have the rich, the elite, the intelligentia. The everyday normal person was a polytheistic culture. They worshiped the gods, they believed there was a god of this, a god of the sky, god of the ocean, Zeus, the god of the storm, and they worshiped these gods. Now, this is the other side story. They're starting to become disillusioned with the gods. They're starting to not trust the gods. They're starting to see the gods as inferior. And in fact, the the mind and the ability of man is starting to become elevated more and more, even equal to, if not above the gods at this time. And and specifically the idea that maybe the gods actually don't control our fate. Uh, They believed in fate at that time, that there was no free will or free choice. And so this is starting to develop among the everyday normal person, but it's the elite that are really taking this much further. And in the elite had this idea of a misreligion, and the misreligions, this view is that knowledge is what will save you. And so they viewed the world and the, the spiritual and the material realm as two different entities, as a, as a duality. Um, two parts that were opposed to each other and didn't work well together. And so for them in the spiritual realm was the God force. Now they wouldn't use it God force in the same sense as Hinduism or Star Wars. For them, God was a mind. Um, They would use the word logos. The Greek word logos means uh, mind, or not, it doesn't mean mind, sorry. It means thought, thinking, reasoning that then will eventually become words. We often are told that Lagos means word, um, but that is the, the fruit of Lagos. Lagos is first and foremost thinking and um, the reasoning about something that will then eventually become words. This is where we get the idea of theology, Lagos. It's the thinking about God, biology, the thinking about life that we then put into words. And so for them, 
the God was logos. It was a mind. It was rational. It was thinking. God was not a being. It had no personhood, and it had no... Um, it was not noble. God was not a he or a sheet, she. It was not body. It was not personal. It had no personality that you could get no love, wrath, and any of that kind of stuff. And it was not knowable because it had no personality. You can't know. You can't come into relationship with it. And so this is the true essence of the universe. This is the spiritual realm. This is the source of all reason and logic. The, the philosophers called it nature. For them, nature was not the nature, the realm of nature, like atheists. And we in science use nature as plants and animals and the ecosystem. For the philosopher, nature was the mind. It was the most natural thing, the, um, the reasoning and logos and all that kind of stuff. And so this is first and foremost. In contrast, that was the material realm. The material realm was concrete. It was tangible. It's the material realm that we live in, but it's inferior. It's completely separate from God and is not created by God, and it's inferior to God. And it was never meant to have human life in it. This is the way they viewed this duality. Now, they, they believe this God force emanated these other beings. You can call them angels, spiritual beings, gods, eons. And so they believe that they emanated these beings out of them. And emanate means basically to step out of something rather than be biologically birthed or created with a word or hands. They emanated these beings out. And these beings came out both male and female, or to be more accurate, masculine and feminine. They don't have physical bodies. They came out, these divine gods, and these gods kind of rule and move around the universe. And obviously as Christianity comes along, they're going to start calling these angels and that kind of stuff. And what happened was that one of these beings decided to create the material realm. And not as something to live in, but something to admire, a beautiful piece of artwork. And they created it, and Plato called this the Demiurge. The Demiurge created the material realm, and this material realm is now there. It is beautiful. It is good. If, if, if the mind is rational and logical and good, the, the, the logos, then what it emanates out of it is going to be logical and rational and good. Therefore, what the Demiurge is going to create is going to be rational, logical, and good. The problem is that the gods begin to admire the creation, and they became so enamored with the creation that as they stared at it and became obsessed with the beauty, they fell into it. And when they fell into it, they came, became encapsulated into the material realm, and the material realm kind of came up around them and imprisoned their bodies in these material fleshly tombs. And in some sense, they even split. Then, So the material realm is not God, so it's ignorance to be trapped in his ignorance, and they split from male and female and became humans. And this is the origin of humans. So the material realm is not a bad and evil thing, but to be trapped in the material realm is bad and evil. Like we would say the ocean is not bad or evil, but to drown in it is not good. It is not like, it's not what we want. As we became trapped in here, the goal then is to escape this. And if it's ignorance that trapped us in this, then it's knowledge that will free us from this. And so they believed that the universe is God, the God mind, and there's eons out there. And they believe that the more that you understood the universe through mathematics and music and, 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 and um, the astronomy and all that kind of stuff, the better you can ascertain the secrets of the universe. And once you understood the secrets of the universe, then you can unlock yourself from your human body. 
and be freed from it. And then you could go Obi-Wan Kenobi on everybody. So where like he just like decides to leave his body and it falls down on the floor and he just becomes this ethereal light thing. And this is a Western version of the Eastern Hinduistic religion, basically, where Hinduism emphasizes everything is illusion and it's just detachment. Muslim religions emphasizes that things are logical and rational, but it's also detachment. The reason I talk about all this is to emphasize two major points about this religion as it deals with John's letters in Christianity. And the two major things I would like to emphasize here is that first, the material realm is therefore not good. As in like to be here in the material realm, to be trapped by it, to be imprisoned in it. We are all the walking dead, so to speak, encased in fleshly tombs. And the goal is to escape it through logic and reason. Therefore, they have no place for Jesus Christ as a human. That would not be good. They would not view Christ as a human as a good thing. They would not admire the idea of him as God-man simultaneously. The Logos would never come into the flesh. The Logos would not would want thing to do with it. The goal is to escape the fleshly world, not to bring more of the spiritual into the fleshly. And so that's a huge emphasis here. The second thing is that salvation is not repentance of sins through confession of the cross, completely dependent upon a death and resurrection, the atonement of sins. Salvation is knowledge. It's intellect. It's reason. And so knowledge is worshipped. Education is worshipped. Education will solve all your problems. Plato believed that we already know everything. We've just forgotten it. So education just helps you recollect it, not learn it. And that is what will free you. That's what will save you. And we see that in our culture to this day. And so knowledge will save you. And so this is the emphasis of their religion. This will eventually, this is a dualistic religion, and this would eventually begin to merge with Christianity. And, then, and, and as it merged with Christianity, not that Christianity would become this, but certain Christians would take these ideas and merge them together. And this would lead to a religion that would become very prominent in the late 90s going into 100 AD and then going into the 200s and 300s called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a Greek word that means gnosis, is knowledge, and so it's emphasizing knowledge to the exclusion of everything else. That's what an ism is, where you emphasize the thing that comes before the ism to the exclusion of everything else. And that is the only thing that matters. And so this religion would begin to merge. And basically what this religion would say is it would be many, many of these elite people, these intelligentia who believe in this religion, they would begin to see the popularity of Christianity growing tremendously. Because what they believed is that knowledge is earned and knowledge is secret. And if you are not, if you can't earn the knowledge and you can't gain the knowledge and ascertain it on your own, then you're not worthy of the knowledge. And that makes it a very elitist religion. And in a world where most people are literate and writing is very rare, there's very few people who actually have the money and the time to sit around and learn things to become knowledgeable enough to free themselves from the material realm. And when Christianity comes along, Christianity was an elitist. Christianity was for you regardless of whether you're male, female, 
Greek or Gentile, or a Greek or Jew, um, uh, rich or um, um, poor, free or slave. Christianity was the only religion in the entire world that was open and offered to everyone by faith alone. Not because of your ethnicity, not because of your knowledge, not because of your works, by faith alone. That began to spread like wildfire and a culture where almost everybody was being oppressed for one reason or the other because of their, their, their gender, their social status, their ethnicity, their lack of political power, or whatever. As these elitists begin to see this happen, they did what powerful people always do. They convert. They pretend to convert. And they join this new thing. I remember my professor in seminary, or, um, college, um, he was in Romania when the wall fell, the, the Iron Curtain, so to speak. And he was there when the, um, when the dictators of the socialistic government were ruling everything. The KGB were constantly following him around because he was an American. And just, oh, are you really truly a spy or not? And when the wall fell down and they tore down the linen statues and Romania and all that kind of stuff and the people celebrated, he talked about how all the Roman Romanian communistic leaders fled for their lives and about six or seven months they all came back and but now they were democracy and they came back into power toting democracy but the laws that they implemented were exactly the same and the people bought into it and so they just began to follow this and in some ways yes it did change tremendously from Romania a lot of the oppression that kind of stuff were no longer there but the ideas and the principles of Lenin and Marx, they just continue to go because they just converted in name. And that's what you're going to see here is that a lot of them are just going to come in and say, oh, yeah, Christianity. In fact, Christianity is just another religion of knowledge that will help you become free. And so this is what they begin to teach. They begin to teach that Christ was one of these eons, one of the, the emanations of the Logos. And that Christ came down into the material realm, not as a material being, but as a spiritual being that very was convincingly physical. People assumed that he was physical because everybody you see is physical. And so he came as a spiritual being, appeared to be physical, and he came to teach us. Let him who has ears hear, and let him who has eyes see. And the parables were esoteric secret teachings. And if you could unlock the meaning, right? The disciples were like, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? What is the meaning of that parable? And Jesus was like, well, let me explain it to you. And they're like, see, there you go. It's, they don't understand it because they're not worthy. And once they understood, they then became worthy. And the disciples started to learn and they became worthy. And it's the secret teachings of Christ that unlock your salvation. And, and so they just begin to merge us and say that Christ is just a great emanation that came down, gave us secret teachings, and he who can unlock the secret meanings will become enlightened. And Christ is just speeding up the enlightenment because he's the first time that we've ever had an eon come into creation and speak things to us. This will be a later thing. Um, a post first, second, third John, but by the time that Revelation comes along, it's becoming full force. And John is scared. This is the setting. This is the religion that's beginning to um, infiltrate the church. In fact, Polycarp was one of the disciples of John, the disciple of Jesus. And Polycarp wrote a lot of letters. And Polycarp wrote in his letters that John, that Gnosticism was spreading to such a degree 
that John himself feared that eventually Christianity would disappear. Now, he writes, too, that John was confident in the message and the gospel and the power of it, but that doesn't change the fact that he's still a human and he has emotions and fears. This is what many, um, Paul is writing against this and parts of Timothy and Titus. Um, James is writing against this. Jude and First Peter are also writing against different forms of this stuff. This is a very dominant idea that they were thinking. This is what the setting is. So it's not, so John is addressing these teachings that are coming to the church, but he's specifically addressing the people in the church who are, are buying into it, that are wondering, okay, wait a minute, we have these very charismatic, eloquent, intelligent people who are saying this, but we also have the disciple of Jesus, John, who is saying this. And they're starting to become confused because once again, the, the writings are very rare. Illiteracy is very high. And, and the ability to communicate over geography is very reduced. And if you're miles and miles and miles away from the disciples, and at this time all of them are pretty much dead except for John due to martyrdom, you, it's going to be hard. It's not like you could just call people up and say, okay, can you remind me again? And so John is writing to address these teachings that are coming to the church that are tempting to persuade people who legitimately want to follow Christ. And that's the setting here that we're talking about. It is not likely that John is talking about one group, a one well-organized group. There's, there's no well-organized group here of coming in. Don't think of it as Mormonism coming to the church or Jehovah Witness or some kind of um, um, cult or something like that. They're, just, they're people who have adopted a philosophical idea and the philosophy of the time period. And they're in the church, and they're teaching and promoting this idea. There are different, many false teachings. They all have their own different flavor. Um, very few people, they are like, yeah, I fall into this foundational core, but I, can, I take it this way. And somebody else will go to that flavor and th that perspective. So what John is dealing with is the foundational principles, the foundational core of what these false teachers are teaching and promoting. Unfortunately, in the early days of studying First John as a Christian church, um, when you're reading John, it's like you're getting one side of the co phone conversation. Where John is saying, they claim, but I tell you. And you're like, well, you're only getting what they claim through John. And not that John's trying to deceive us or anything, but he's not giving you the full package because he assumes you already know it. But thousands of years later, we don't really know what Gnosticism was. And it wasn't until the 1945 that we uncovered a whole bunch of Gnostic writings and what's called the Nag Hammadi findings. Nag Hammadi is a city in Egypt. And then we finally were like, oh my gosh, here's the other side of the phone conversation. And, and we became very aware and educated now on what Gnosticism really was. We had ideas from John and other people, but it was like listening to one side of the phone conversation. And even with these letters now that we have, we still don't quite know the full other side of the phone conversation. John is focusing on these teachings, and that's what we need to bear in mind, that he, we, not, we can't take this too specific and, and, re, and that he's refuting very specific technical details, but rather more general ideas of philosophy. For John, several major characteristics show the opponents to be false teachers. He, he very much sees this as us versus them. They are not Christian. 
They're not godly. They're not of God. They do not have fellowship with him. And they are to be exterminated from the church. Not in a physical sense, but driven out. Probably not the best word. It's only the word popped in my head in that moment. They are to be driven out of the church. And they are not to be tolerated in any kind of a way. And so they have several characteristics. First, they deny the apostolic authority and the teachings of the disciples who walk with Jesus. They would come across the church and they would say, we are educated. They're not. We understand the teachings of Christ. They don't. They're a bunch of fishermen. They are very few. They are dead. We are numerous. We are educated. We have studied the writings. We know the truth. Follow us. And so for him, the false teacher or the opponent are ones who deny the authority of the apostles as ordained by Christ himself. Christ is the one that gave the apostles the authority. Therefore, their words and their understanding have authority over the church, not these latecomers to the picture who never saw Christ, were never chosen by Christ, never heard Christ's teachings, but are only getting them through the apostles. I mean, most of what they know is coming through the writings of the people who knew Jesus. And so they deny that. Second, concerning their beliefs about Christ, although they do not question his godhood, they question his humanity. The opponents would not have a problem with Christ's claim as son of God, but they would deny that Jesus being human, the incarnation, the virgin birth of Mary. And so for them, they would deny this completely. For John, this is not acceptable. And we've talked about this in many, many other studies. But remember, Jesus has to be the God-man for you to be safe. He has to be God in order to be sinless. Only God is sinless. And so he has to be sinless to atone for your sins. Because if he had sin and he dies, he'd be dying for his sin. He'd have no more dying left over for you and your sin. So he had to be God in order to be sinless so that he could actually die for your sins and not his sins. He also had to be God because he had to be able to conquer the grave and be resurrected. No human can self-resurrect itself. No human can conquer the grave. No human can conquer sin. No human can conquer the devil. And he had to be able to do that, and only God can do that. But he also had to be human because humans are the ones who sin. And only a human can die for human sins. And so in order to represent us on the cross, he had to be human in order to represent us. He also had to be human in order to be able to die. God can't die. He had to be human in order to die, but he also became human to know what it's like to be us, to relate to us, to connect to us, to live in a material realm that has fallen, to live in a material body that is flawed, and to grow up and learn things about the world that we have to learn, and then to struggle like us so that he could come along of our sides and walk through us after he has saved us and redeemed us. And so if you do not embrace Christ as the God-man, then you have no salvation because there is no God that can be sinless and conquer death for you, and there is no human that can represent you and die for you. And so for John, this is unacceptable. For the apostles, this is unacceptable. For Jesus, this is unacceptable because he clearly portrayed himself as the God-man over and over and over again in many different ways. And so these teachers would deny the humanity of Christ. And John says, no, that's false. And you are not to follow people like that. Third, they treat sin lightly. 
They treat sin lightly, either in that they believe that they are without sin, or that sin bears no guilt and is no big deal. Many Gnostics believe that if the body is a prison, and the body is not really you, and the body is to be escaped, well, then what happens in the body stays in the body. You can do whatever you want in the body because that's not you. And you don't, therefore don't ever have to feel guilty for what's happening in the body and what you've done because that's not you. And eventually you will leave that all completely behind, so who cares? Other Gnostics didn't go quite that far, but they would then say, well, well I don't sin, though. I have secret knowledge. Now, Plato believed that once you recollect something, once you knew it, you'd automatically do the right thing. He believed that knowledge would lead to truth and lead to right action. So he believed that if, if somebody learned that this is not good and this is not virtuous, they would once they knew that, they would automatically stop doing it. And we can see this in the American culture. We are very much a product of Platonic thinking and teaching. And so, right, how do you get everybody to stop smoking? You educate them with a bunch of commercials and propaganda and all that kind of stuff. And when we have sexually transmitted diseases and when pregnancy is happening a lot, what do you do? Well, you, you, you get government projects to buy a bunch of bananas and condoms and you educate people how to put condoms on bananas. Because once you, and you educate them about sexually transmitted diseases. And they do this in public schools. And once they're educated, we won't have a problem anymore. Well, but wait a minute. Well, why do we have doctors who still smoke? And kids and, and the epidemics are going higher, right? We know that just because we're educated and know something, that doesn't immediately stop anything. And we're a result of that. We have poured tons. Like, I believe in education. I'm a teacher. And I believe that education is absolutely essential for our foundational place because if you don't know it, then obviously you can't act upon it, right? Like, you have to know. But I don't believe that education will automatically save me and redeem me. And that's what Plato believed. And that's kind of how we think. They would say then, either your guilt, your sin has no bearing. It doesn't even matter. Who cares what you do? It's the body. Or they would say, I'm educated. Therefore, I'm automatically doing what is right. Fourth, the worst part for John is that they fail to show love and take care of their fellow brother's needs. Loving the world more than they love the believers. Thus, the opponents hate the believers just like the world does. So this is very important for John. For John, they don't love. They don't love like Christ does. They don't love like the believers do. They don't love like one who is being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Because for them, knowledge is all that matters. And you're not worthy if you can't figure it out. And for them, all that matters is escaping. Why would you invest in people if the whole point is escaping? Why would you invest in people if they're not proving themselves to be worthy? Why would you do that? And so for them, it's about knowledge. It's not about love and community and that kind of stuff. This is essential. What makes them a false teacher is they deny both truth and love. They deny truth and love. And this is a big theme in John, where the truth is who Christ is as revealed through him and carried on through the apostles. And love is mutual, sacrificial love of the believers. If you do not have the truth, you will not love. Truth will not automatically lead you to loving perfectly, but if you don't have the truth, then you cannot love. And we'll unpack that more. And I think we're even seeing that in our culture right now. Like, 
as we're walking more and more away from the culture or away from truth and Christianity and biblical principles, like there's a lot of non-believers who are very loving, very compassionate, right? They care for a lot of people. But I think we're starting to see that that's not a result of them, but a result of being born into a Judeo-Christian world. Francis Schaeffer was a phenomenal Christian mind. He was alive in the 1970s and, and later into that, but he was very prominent in the 1970s. And he coined this phrase called total truth or true truth. And total truth was lots of people have truth, but only those who have the Holy Spirit have total truth, complete truth, true truth. And what he taught was that the truth of Christianity had impacted the American culture and the European culture so strongly and so powerfully that it actually had shaped and changed the culture. And even though people, not everybody in America, not everybody in Europe were Christians, they had all adopted a Christian view of the world. Before Christianity came into the world, the Gregor-Wormer world accepted pedophilia. Abortion was okay. Homosexuality was okay. Beating your kids was okay. They, they deserved it. A father had every right to beat his kid with even an inch of his life. Kids had no rights until they were 12, 13 years old, so to speak. And so slavery was okay. Prostitution was okay. Bestiality was accepted. Worshipping prostitution. All this stuff was okay. Child slavery. All those things that we are abhorred as was okay. It was Christianity that they began to abolish those and speak against them. And there's really great books written on how Christianity changed the world. I think one of the most powerful ones that have just come out is Dominion, written by Tom Holland. And he's an atheist. He's not even Christian. And yet he's got this huge, thick book about how Christianity has changed the world for the better. That's a very powerful argument being written by a non-Christian who actually doesn't even believe in God. And so Christianity is what made the world a better place. And, and Christianity just so changed the world that the culture as a whole began to accept the values of Christianity. Even though they weren't a Christian, they began to value abolition or getting rid of pedophilia, getting rid of child slavery, getting rid of uh, fighting for equal rights for women, anti-abortion, homosexuality, punishing people for murder, not beating your children, right? All these things. Be and so by the time we got to like the 1950s and stuff, there was a very strong Judeo-Christian culture permeating our world. And many people were not Christians, but they had very strong Christian values. Because Christianity is so powerful, and it's so true to the core of the universe, because God created the universe, that when Christians are very influential, even the non-Christians will begin to adopt this. But as Christianity became complacent, became relaxed, became kind of like, this is really good, then we let down our guard. And the devil's always there. The world, the flesh, and the devil's always there to keep pushing these things back in. And the church began to become relaxed and complacent. They stopped witnessing to people. They started getting caught up in the materialism of our culture, of the Industrial Revolution. They started becoming entertained and amused by the culture. And then they started looking like the world. And then they surrendered many of the things a Christian was supposed to do to the government, allowed the government to start fixing problems and taking care of things with programs. And the next thing we knew, we were no longer being sold in light as a whole. I don't mean every single Christian, but as a whole. And now we wonder why homosexuality is not okay, transgenderism is okay, 
even pedophilia is starting to become okay. It's now minor attraction, and that's what's being taught in elementary schools. Like, it's okay. If it's too okay for two men to love each other, then why not a man and a boy? It's just what their heart wants. And a lot of these things are starting to become acceptable. And we're watching the culture, right, degrade. And what are we also watching as a result? The fading away of love. People, we, we, I feel like in the last couple of years especially, hatred for people has really grown. There are more fact, fract, factions in America. There is more cancel culture happening. The, the, Democrats and Republicans didn't always agree, but they didn't go at each other's throats like they are now. Maybe a few people here and there, right? But not in a whole. Not in, now, now Christianity has been thrown up there. Um, the newest thing the ABC is saying is that the white Christian male is the downfall of everything. They're going to take over the country and enslave us all. Um, this kind of stuff. And we are beginning to see the family is falling apart. And as a result, fathers are not loving their kids anymore. They're abandoning them, walking out. Mothers are absent and that kind of stuff. And we are, we're, the love is starting to fall away. And I think we're beginning to realize that the reason a lot of non-Christians were able to love like that is because they were still shaped through what's called second-hand truth. The truth was so prominent and permeated the culture so much that they just kind of secondhandly absorbed the truth. And they lived it out, and they saw the fruit of it, and they liked it. But as crazy, weird philosophical ideas and ideologies begin to creep in the culture, and people want to do what they want to do, then they begin to buy into those ideologies, and those ideologies are always self-serving. They're always for your gain and your purpose. And then you begin to feel that power and control of what you want, and then no matter how much you want to love people, what you really want is what you want. And then you begin to find that you're willing to sacrifice your kids for more money and a better job promotion. And then you're willing to even sacrifice them physically for a better job and a promotion and more time and freedom. And I think that's what we're beginning to see in the cultures. What John is saying is that if you are not rooted in the truth, then you will not have mutual love. And I think it was very hard for us to see John's argument back in the 1950s and 60s. But I think today we're beginning to realize as the truth is dying, so is love. So is love. And if you're not rooted in the truth of who God is, then how can you have the love of God? And I don't mean that no, Christ, non, no non-Christian is capable of love in any kind of way. I'm not arguing that. Everybody's capable of love. We're all made in the image of God. We're all capable of self-sacrifice. But I mean a total encompassing self-sacrifice love. That's hard. That's hard. And right, even as a Christian, do you know how selfish you are, right? Do you battle that constantly all the time? As a parent, how many times you're like, I would just like to be, get away from them, right? And why is it so hard? And, and you're with your next door neighbors or whatever, your spouses, right? Even as Christians of the Holy Spirit, we know how selfish we can be and how close we are to just falling off into, screw it, I want to do what I want. Now take away the Holy Spirit. Take away truth. I'm not saying this as an anti-non-Christian or the non-Christian's incapable. I'm just saying it's so dang difficult for us with the Holy Spirit. And how much more would it be for the world without the Holy Spirit? And this is what John is saying. That ultimately what makes the false teacher a false teacher is they have no truth and love. And these two things go together just like Jesus the God-man. 
Just as Jesus is the God of man, so is truth and love. And this is the main point that John is going to emphasize over and over again in his three letters. Truth and love. Truth and love. Truth and love. The true believer embraces the truth and love. And if there is no evidence of truth or love, then there may, no be, there may be no assurance of salvation. Does that mean that you have to do it perfectly? Heck no. But should you desire and pursue it and want it and, and, and be remorseful when you don't? Yes. And we'll unpack that a lot more when we get into the letter. But that's kind of the setting of what we're going into. Any questions? Comments? Aha moments? These opponents are trying to deceive the believers and lead them away from the true Jesus Christ. John writes to encourage the believers to live in accordance with the teachings of life of Jesus Christ and his apostles. So John is writing this letter partly to say, stick to truth and love. Remember the thing that you hated about the Greek world? The thing that Christianity, what was attractive to you about Christianity? The thing that you wanted to escape from the Greek world? The thing that you were so thankful for in Christianity? Truth and love. Why would you want to go back to the false teachers? There's no truth and love there. You've, you've, and we'll see this, right, in other writers of the, 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 the epistles. You've tasted that life. You lived that life. You know where that leads you. Why would you want to go back to that? I get it if you've grown up in the church your entire life and that's all you've ever known. You might begin to question, is this the truth, right? But for those who've been outside of Christianity and taste the hopelessness and the futility of it all, and then you became a Christian later in life, John's writing to you, why would you want to go back to that? Why would you want to go back to that? And for these Christians, they've all come from that world. They've all come from it. It will be many years before you have born in the church Christians, right? 